Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 down through 11. Uh, mainly want to look at verses 8 through 11, but I want to begin reading at uh, verse 1 and say a few things as we make our way down. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the life that we have in him. We thank you for the salvation that he has uh, brought to us. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sin, the justification uh, before God. We thank you for the the uh, uh, fellowship that we have with each other, for the time together that you've gathered us here. Lord, we pray that you would be in our midst as you've promised that the Holy Spirit would help us and enable us not only just to lift up our voices as we just did, but Lord, that he might also be with us as we listen to the Word of God, that he might be our instructor, our teacher, that he might give us understanding, uh, revelation of the things of God found here in the Word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak and to minister uh, this Word even now and any of the other brothers that might speak or say anything. Lord, we, we pray that you would just guide them and direct them, that you would keep us from error and that you would uh, only give us the truth here, Father, that we might speak it uh, and not speak of our own wisdom and our own understanding, but we might uh, lean upon Christ and upon the Spirit of God to give us those things. Father, we need you here. Without, without your presence, without your enabling, without your unction, Lord, we, we just speak things from our own understanding and our own mind, and it doesn't profit anything. Uh, so, Father, we just ask that today that you might glorify your Son, in our worship, and we just ask that now in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, and we it was a while before that since we've been here, but um, if you remember back, we need to have context to that verse. Chapters 3 and 4 give us context to what is being talked about right here in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, of course, we all know the Bible, whenever it was written, it wasn't written in chapters and verses. Those were added for our, you know, understanding and quick reference and things like that. But that wasn't how it was written. This is a letter that was written to the Romans by Paul. And so in that letter, it's written in a letter format. You know, he's talking, writing out his the thoughts. Of course, we all know that all that writing was the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul wasn't just coming up with things to say on his own and the Holy Spirit made it sound good. No, the Holy Spirit was giving him what he needed to write down. These are the very words of God. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's breathed out by God. So when those men wrote, they didn't just write because God gave them knowledge and they wrote from that knowledge. God gave them the words to write. And they wrote down that word. The Holy Spirit guided them in everything that was being written. So therefore, in this first verse, when we talk about therefore being justified by faith, the Holy Spirit isn't going to talk about one way of being justified after He has already, in chapters 3 and 4, talked about how we were actually justified. The faith that is in view here in verse 5 is not your believing in Jesus Christ. We are not justified by believing in Jesus Christ. We are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. We are justified by His faithfulness. It is His act of righteousness that we were justified. And that's what Romans 3, Romans 4 was all in context about. That we are justified by the faith of Christ. And a lot of people have taken that and made that the faith of Christ that has been given to me to exercise in Him, and therefore we are justified at the time that we believe on Jesus Christ. And that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Now that's what a lot of tradition has taught, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are justified completely and solely by the faithful work and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was His obedience to the Father that brought us the substitutionary obedience that we can't ever keep. We can't obey God's law, right? 
So therefore, we can't ever be justified. The Bible says that no man will be justified by the deeds of the law. No man can be justified. Why? Because none of us can keep the law. I don't care how good you try to keep it, you can't keep it. Because the righteous requirement of the law is that every law be kept perfectly all the time. Now we can't keep that. So therefore, we need a substitute to do that on our behalf. And Christ did that. Christ came and lived perfectly to the law, fulfilling the law as your proxy, as your substitute, in your place. So His obedience, God takes now and He applies that to you. You now have completely obeyed all the law of God because Christ did it for you. Okay? Now, His obedience, that obedience, that faithfulness to God, that belief that God would give Him all the reward for what He did... That is what justified us. See, we can't be justified by anything that we do. Even our own belief in Jesus Christ doesn't make us righteous before God. It doesn't make us righteous before God. We account His faithfulness as righteous as our righteousness. That's what Abraham did. Remember back in Genesis 15? When Abraham believed God, and it says, and he accounted it for righteousness... What did he account it for? What was the it? The it was the seed. The seed was accounted. Abraham heard the gospel that there was one who would be to come who would be his righteousness and that in him that all his children would be made righteous. And by him all his children would be made righteous. And so Abraham saw that. Remember the Bible says that Abraham saw him from afar off. Abraham saw Christ... And Abraham believed in God and in what God said because God cannot lie. He believed what God said about his righteousness. His righteousness wasn't in Abraham. It wasn't even in Abraham believing on God. Abraham accounted or considered, reckoned his righteousness to be the seed that was to come. That's what Abraham reckoned to be his righteousness. And so whenever Paul quotes that in Romans 3 or 4, whenever he quotes that, he goes back to what Abraham did. Abraham looked ahead and seen Christ as his righteousness, and he didn't account his trying to work for righteousness or his trying to believe for righteousness. He accounted Christ for his righteousness. And so now, whenever one believes upon Jesus Christ, we are justified in the sense that it makes manifest that we are the children of God, that we are the children of righteousness. Not that it makes us righteous with God. It is not a righteousness of our own. Matter of fact, the Bible says that all of our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. So, again, I always like to make that distinction. It says righteousnesses, not our unrighteousnesses. So that means everything that we do that is that we think is good or is in a righteous thing towards God... God counts that as unrighteousness. Why? Because he doesn't accept anything from this flesh. The only thing he accepts is what? Christ. The only thing he accepts is what Christ has done. Nothing that we do. Uh, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Right? So if we look inwardly to whether it is good works or whether it is even our faith, we are always going to come up short. And you know why? Because I know every one of you are just like me. My faith wavers. <laughs> I don't have strong faith all the time. I don't have perfect faith. I don't have faith, matter of fact. The faith that I have is not even mine. It's a gift that God has given to me. It's Him working in me that faith. So I can't even claim that faith to be mine. So there is no righteous works that I do. The only righteousness works, the only righteous works that has ever been done is Christ Jesus. That's what justifies. His faithfulness justified us. We are justified by His life. We are justified by His death. We are justified by His resurrection. 
Look those up. Every place that you find justification, it's going to be by the faith of Christ. It's going to be by the blood of Christ. It's going to be by the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, by the grace of God. We are justified by something outside of anything that we do. So when we come to chapter 5 and verse 1, the context of 3 and 4 is screaming very loudly, therefore being justified by Christ's faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, me believing in Jesus Christ doesn't bring peace with God. The only thing that brought peace with God between me and God is through the mediator because there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. The only one that can mediate or intercede for me on behalf of God so that it will make it where I can have peace with God is Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification, brethren, isn't about your faith in Jesus. Justification is about Christ's work on your behalf, justifying you before God, therefore making peace with God. Peace was made with by God by Him justifying you. And He did that through His life, His death, His resurrection. And, as we'll see here in just a minute, his ongoing, continual life. Verse 2 says, By whom, meaning Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Now that access by faith, I think that goes right back to talking about the faith that we just talked about in context there. His faith, by whom also we have access by his faithfulness. We have access to God by his faithfulness. How is it that we approach God? How is it that we can come boldly before the throne of God? Well, it's only by grace and specifically only by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? We can only come boldly before the throne of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can only come to God through the intercessor, Jesus Christ. Listen, whether it was before or whether it's after, whether it was in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, whether it was before I became knowledgeable of my salvation or after I became knowledgeable of my salvation, while I'm alive or after I die, there's only one way that God has any interaction with me, and that is through the intercessor or the mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we have any kind of access to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. So here we see, by whom Jesus Christ... Also, we have access by His faithfulness into this grace wherein we stand. Now take note of that. Wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does it mean to stand? That, to me, now, I, and I might be wrong, and, and you brothers are welcome to correct me on this if, if, if I'm looking at this incorrectly. Um, whenever I see wherein we stand, I look at being preserved. I look at, at preservation. We stand in the faith. We stand in in uh, uh, in the doctrines. How is it that we stand in, in, in doctrine? Whenever the world is full of all these flaky doctrines out there. Whenever we are bombarded by so-called Christians who are have every wind of doctrine out there. How is it that the Lord's people... Uh, his true churches stand in doctrine. Well, it's because He preserves them. He keeps them from falling. He keeps them from apostatizing. He keeps them from going away. He secures them by, by the Holy Spirit who, who continuously preserves them in the faith, keeps them from falling away. So whenever I see that phrase, uh, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand... I think of preservation. I think of Christ's ongoing work on our behalf. What He did on the cross is a finished work. Now, don't get me wrong. Whenever I say an ongoing work of Jesus, I'm not saying that there is uh, that there is a, a legality thing that still needs to be done. Now, until I'm convinced otherwise, I believe when we talk about salvation, we have a legal aspect to salvation, and then we have an experiential aspect to salvation. We have legally what needed to be done for our salvation, and Jesus did every bit of that. Jesus accomplished everything legally that had to be done to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy God's righteousness, 
so that we as sinners could be saved, that we could be with God, that we could be His people, that God could love us, that God could uh, uh, bless us, whatever you want to say. It was the fact that Jesus did all that, that legally made it right for God to justify us. See, God can't justify sinners. God can't justify the wicked. But His people have been justified because of someone who substituted for them. So that that right there satisfied all the law and the justice of God on our behalf. But whenever we are experientially saved, that's how that salvation that Christ secured legally is experienced by us. Now what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is at the time whenever God brings us into understanding of our salvation whenever we're converted, whenever He gives us uh, spiritual understanding, when He opens our eyes and opens up our ears and opens up our heart to be able to understand the gospel, to be able to believe. He grants us repentance. He grants us faith. And we are able to take what we see and hear and we believe that that is ours. We have given, as it says here, we have a hope. We've been given a hope. Well, that's all supernatural. That's all done by God. It's not done by us. It's not something that we work up. It's not something that we build up. It's not something we can study over and over and over again and learn it. This is something that is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit of God that is foreign to us that we cannot do because we have an inability to be able to do spiritual things. The natural man cannot... Uh, understand or know or perceive or to uh, uh, enjoy the spiritual things of God because he's natural. He's, he's not spiritual. He has to be made spiritual. He has to be a spiritual man. Therefore, that's why we have to be born from above. We have to be born again. But we see this experiential. We, so we have a legal aspect. We have an experiential. We come to know our salvation. We begin to enjoy our salvation. We begin to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible says we're also preserved. Right? We're kept from falling away. Uh, I know as growing up as Baptists and everything, we've all heard the phrase, you know, once saved, always saved, and everything. And that's... Is there truth behind that? Yes. If you're once saved, you're always saved. The connotation to that to most people is, oh, well, just once I'm saved, I can live however I want. Now, that doesn't... I've never heard one Baptist ever preach that, by the way. Um, nor think that. But anyway, so we have this idea of once saved, always saved, or eternal security or security of the believer, all these different phrases that we might use for this. What does that mean? Well, it means that whenever we're saved, there is no way that we can fall away. Now, back before I come to know the sovereignty of God and election and predestination and all that kind of stuff, before the Lord taught those things to me as an Armenian, I, I believe that we had a free will to choose salvation if we wanted it, but once we were saved, we could never leave that. So I believe that God didn't have the power to make me be saved, but he had the power to keep me from going away from being saved. And see, that don't make any sense. If God can have control over my will after I become a Christian, how come he can't have control over my will? See, that the fallacy, the inconsistencies of those unbiblical theological systems, right? That's the natural man's thing. So, the reason that we cannot fall away is because salvation... In all of its aspects, whether it's legally or experientially, all of salvation is outside of our grasp. All of salvation has nothing to do with what we do. See, my legal salvation had everything to do with Jesus Christ, but so is my experiential salvation. Everything of my experience, experience of salvation, my believing, my receiving, my coming, my, uh, uh, my uh, uh, repenting, um, my being kept in the faith, my growing and understanding of the Scriptures, every bit of that is also by the sovereign hand of God. He keeps us. He gives us the measure of faith. He grants to us repentance. He keeps us from falling. All these things is done by God. So therefore, all of salvation, whether it's the legal aspect or the experiential aspect, is all of 
Christ. That's why the Bible says salvation is of the Lord. So sometimes the Bible, when it uses the word salvation, speaks of that legal aspect. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word saved or salvation, it speaks of it in an experiential way, of a deliverance. Are we continually being delivered? Yes. So whenever I said a while ago that Christ and His intercession is this ongoing work of salvation, I'm not referring to that salvation wasn't finished at the cross, because legally it was finished. But experientially it continues to go on until the day that we go to be with Him. And the reason I say that is because of this very passage that we're looking at. Verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love towards us, or exampled His love towards us, or showed His love towards us, okay, or confirmed His love. God confirmed His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God didn't die for us when we were in our best state possible. No, God died for us as we are. Not as we were, as we are. Because brethren, in the flesh, we still are as we were. <laughs> if, you, if you allow me that. Becoming a Christian, being born again, doesn't change my flesh any. My flesh doesn't become righteous. It doesn't grow holy. It doesn't get no better. It is what it is. The flesh is just flesh that can never please God. However, there is a new creation that the Lord has put inside of us. There's two men. There is the natural man. There's the spiritual man. There is the man of the flesh. There's the man of the spirit. There is that which is born from earth and is earthy. And there is that man that is born from heaven and is heavenly. So see, we have two men in us. We have the flesh which is all unrighteousness, and then we have the Spirit. We have the inward man that is created in righteousness and true holiness. And he says here that while we were yet sinners, so while I was at the very worst of worst, and still am at the very worst of worst, Christ not only did He die for me, but He continually lives for me. He doesn't let me fall away. The pressing onwardness of this salvation wasn't just at the cross, but the experience of it. The graciousness of God is that I might experience, not just hear about and learn about a salvation, but I might truly experience that salvation by the hope that God gives us. See, God gives us a hope. That's a that's an ongoing work of salvation. Part of the salvation that Christ secured for us legally is to experientially be able to have that hope that's in us. To know the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm His. What He did on the cross, He did for me. That if He says that I will not die, I, I take that to mean that I will not die. If he says that he's going to give me life, I take that that he's given me life. If he says that I'm not going to fall away, I trust him and his promise that I will not fall away. I've been given a hope that he said that he's going to come back and receive me to himself, that he's coming back to receive Mike Smith. Not just some, you know, nameless, faceless cloud of people, but he's coming back to get me. He's given me a hope. Now, that hope isn't based on anything else. Again, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope isn't built on how much I read the Bible, how much I pray, how much I love you as brethren. My hope isn't built on how many good deeds that I do, you know, how much I give or how much I serve or how much I preach or how much I understand. My hope isn't built on any of that. So my preservation is not coming from anything without. Our hope, our preservation, 
comes from within because it's from the Holy Spirit. And that is a work of God that He has ordained for us to walk in. A work of God that He has done. He has given us faith. He has given us hope. He has given us love. Those three things God has given us, it's a spiritual gift. It's an inward work. It's not nothing that I can view outwardly. I can't look at you and say, I know that you're His because of this. Because all of us can mimic that, right? I mean, I can be really nice to Kevin. I can be really loving towards Kevin. But whenever he leaves, I say, man, I'll tell you what, I'm glad that guy's gone. Right? I can look like it on the outside. I don't really think that way. I can think that way. You know what? I can memorize Scripture and I can seem to be very, very astute in God's Word and very theological. But one thing that I cannot mimic is to have a true hope. One thing that I cannot mimic is to have true faith. One thing I cannot mimic is to have a true love for God and the brethren. You can't mimic that. That's something that's given on the inside. And so here he says that he gives us this thing and it's part of this work of Jesus Christ. And he says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad. For while when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, I'll back down to that verse 9. I'm sorry, I'm going back over ones I already read. Much more then, being now justified by His blood. There again, see our justification wasn't in what we believed, but in what Christ did is justification by His blood. It says, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled. Pay close attention to that word, reconciled. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. See, there was a salvation in reconciliation. See, we were reconciled by, by Christ in His death. But brethren, there is also an ongoing experiential part of salvation that is a shall be. We shall be saved. Or we shall be. That word saved there, that word saved there means to be preserved. We shall be preserved by His life. See, He saved us legally in our standing before God, but experientially, we also, by His life, not the life that He lived, the life that He lived is what legally saved us, but the life that He is living now in the present is what preserves us. Let's keep reading. We'll find out why. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now remember, if we're reconciled, that means there's no more enmity, right? That means there's peace. God's made Christ has made peace with us in God. There's no more enmity. There's no more division there. There's no more separation between us because God has reconciled us through the death of His Son, but being reconciled. The fact that there's no division, there's no separation, there's nothing there that keeps God from not being able to bless and love and accept and us to be able to come to Him. There's nothing there. We shall be saved or preserved by His life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Now that word atonement there also is reconciliation. That's what the word atonement means. is reconciliation. Now, I'm going to make a, a, a confession here. I have for a long time used this word atonement and I still, just because it's ingrained in my mind from years and years of saying it and, and thinking it and all like this. Whenever we say atonement, we always think of Christ's death. That it's His death. And we're specifically, or whenever we say like limited atonement, we mean that Christ's death was only for... But the word atonement actually isn't speaking of the actual dying part, but the actual accomplishment after the dying. The atonement is what the dying brought. His dying 
See, the atonement isn't the crucifixion. The atonement is what happened after the crucifixion. The atonement is what happened. If we go back, there was two things that the priest uh, did in their service. Number one, they made a sacrifice. They, they were part of the work or the service of the priest was to make the sacrifice, to make the oblation, right? But the second part of that was intercession for the people. The priest not only made the sacrifice, but he made intercession. You remember when Moses, whenever he received the commandments from God, and he came down and he gave those commandments to the people and everything, and then he made a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and then after he made that sacrifice, he took the blood, and the Bible says that he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. So there was a shedding of blood, but then there was the application of the blood to the people. The blood was shed, but because that blood was shed, it had to be applied to those for whom it was shed. The applying of the blood is what makes atonement. Whenever the priest would go in and everything was cleansed with blood, they would sprinkle blood around all the altar and they would put it on the horns and everything there and then they would put it on the altar. The atonement was made right there on the mercy seat, which is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, when you look at the Ark of the Covenant. That gold lid that covered the, the Ark, that was called the mercy seat and that's where the blood was poured out and the blood there was where God came down and He accepted that sacrifice. So see, we're accepted with God by the blood of Jesus Christ and that is atonement. Reconciliation is only through the blood. But the blood has to be shed first. The priest has to make the ablation but then there has to be intercession. Now, what does it say here? It says, And not only so, but we also, or excuse me, verse 10, For if when we were enemies were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. This is the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. Look, if you would, with me at um, Hebrews chapter 7. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to start reading at uh, verse 23. It says, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of Christ, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is also able also to save them, or deliver them, preserve them, that word there is also in Greek, preserve them to the uttermost, that come unto him by, uh, come unto God by him, seeing, or the reason by, the reason that he can do this, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus ever liveth. The reason that He rose from the dead and He still is in body form, sitting at the right hand of God, is because He ever lives to make intercession for them. He is making intercession for us. Now how is He interceding for us? He is interceding by preserving us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had these same thoughts probably that you have and probably have heard, Jesus is up there praying for us. That's His intercession. Brother, He prayed once. In John chapter 17, He prayed once for His people. Does He have to continue to pray for us? No, He doesn't have to continue to pray. God heard His prayer. Everything that Jesus prayed in John 17... He prayed, and we know that He's going to get everything that He prayed for on that because He prayed the will of God. This is the will of God that, that, that all these things take place. The intercession that Jesus makes isn't up there. He has to keep going up and saying, showing God, hey, you can't do nothing to them. Here's my blood. 
You can't do nothing to them. Here's my blood. Or whenever the devil comes and tries to accuse him, he says, can't accuse them. Here's my blood. He doesn't have to keep doing anything. The fact that Jesus is there is proof enough that God has accepted everything on behalf of what He did. Everything that Jesus did, God raised Him from the dead. The resurrection is proof that God and all of His justice and all of His salvation is was in Christ Jesus and He secured all that. That's why Jesus said it's finished. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to secure. Everything for my people is done. He has made unto us wisdom. He has made unto us righteousness. He has made unto us uh, sanctification. Everything that we have need of, Jesus was for us. And therefore, God was pleased with that. He was satisfied with that. He raised Christ from the dead. The fact that Christ ever liveth means that God heard His intercessory prayer and now on behalf of what Christ did, that intercession is being made. He ever lives to preserve us. Why are we being preserved? Because of what Christ already did and what Christ did justified the intercession and the intercession itself is in the very efficacy of the the uh, sacrifice. See, I can no longer make an intercession. If I intercede to God, if Christ is interceding for me, that intercession is only as good as the fact that I become the perfect sacrifice and accomplish all that God requires. See, if I, if I intercede for Kevin, it's not going to do anything. Why? Because I can't do anything that would legally cause God in a righteousness to save Kevin. So my intercession doesn't mean anything because there's no efficacy in anything that I do. Even if I died for Kevin. If somebody strung me up on that tree out there and crucified me and even put a sign over my head, you know, King of the Joplinites, you know, and put me to death out there and as I'm dying I say, I love you Kevin and I'm doing this for you so you don't have to die. Guess what? That ain't going to get him into heaven. Why? Because there's no efficacy in me. There's no efficacy in me. The efficacy of Christ's death is what qualified His intercession. The fact that He lived perfectly through the law. The the fact that He lived and died perfectly in accordance to the law without sin. He became sin for us, but He didn't become sinful. He became sin for us. That was the efficacy. That was what qualified him to be able to pray the prayer. I pray that all those that are that you have given me, I want them to be with me. Where I am, I want them to be with me. I want them to be one as we are one. The efficacy of that came, or excuse me, the justification of that that uh, uh, prayer came from the efficacy of his death. And just the opposite, he couldn't have prayed that prayer if that death never would have happened. He couldn't have said, I want all these people to be here with me and one as me and you are one if he never did fulfill all the law and die that death that he died. That prayer would have meant nothing. We would all still still be in our sins and our faith would be in vain if Christ would not have done that. So see, it takes the oblation and it takes the intercession to be a perfect high priest. And to be that, Jesus has not only secured our legal salvation, but He has secured our experiential salvation, our continuance in the faith, our faithfulness, our adherence to the doctrine of Christ, our keeping from apostasy and falling away. He is preserving us. Why? Because He ever lives to intercede. He is able to save them to the uttermost. Not just save them legally, but to bring them not only from the, not only in that aspect, but to bring them from the cross all the way to His throne. He's able to do that. Why? Because He ever lives to intercede. But He's not up there begging God to keep saving us, keep saving us, keep saving us. He's not begging God for nothing. No, He's up there as a sign, as a symbol, as the, the substance of everything. The fact that I'm sitting here on the throne is the intercession. Because I have went to the grave and ascended to the throne, 
My people and everything that was promised to my people are going to be given to them. Why? Because I ever lived to intercede for them. I'm the proof that God has accepted everything on their behalf. And if we weren't all Baptists, we'd all be shouting amen, right? <laughs> we ought to be shouting amen. Because it is because of that that we have been and are being and will be saved. Because of that, brother. It's not because Mike's a good guy. It's not because Mike keeps up a good rapport with God. It's not because of that. It's because Jesus ever lives to intercede. Now, with that being said, we got this right here shows us that this notion that Jesus died for everybody can't be possible. Because everyone for whom the priest made sacrifice for, the priest sprinkled the blood on. Everyone for whom the priest made sacrifice for, he took and interceded for them, and they be, they received all the benefits, all the application of that salvation to them. So whoever Jesus dies for, he is interceded for. And all those that He intercedes for, He ever lives to intercede for. Therefore, everything that is part of salvation, they will receive, and that includes your faith, your repentance, your long-suffering, your meekness, your temperance, your whatever, the spiritual gifts that God's given to you, but it also includes your preservation, your continuance until the end. So see, we can't say Jesus died for everybody because not everybody falls into those categories. Brother, this isn't a us being pride and boastful because we're the elect of God. This should be a very humbling thing that while we were yet sinners like everybody else, Christ died for us. It is before the boys had done anything good or bad so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. He chose Jacob and not Esau. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Wherein have you loved us? Did not I choose Jacob and not Esau? See, whenever we come to these doctrines, it isn't to boast. It isn't to say, well, Jesus did that for me, but He didn't do that for you. And we don't preach Jesus didn't die for everybody just so that we can say we're better than everybody else. We preach that because it's the truth of Scripture. And we preach that not as a boasting point, but we preach that to say that this salvation is not for everybody because it isn't applied to everybody. If it was applied to everybody, everybody would be getting it. Everybody would be believing. Everybody would be understanding the Scriptures. Everybody would be preserving into the end. And everybody would be in heaven whenever we get there. Listen, I have a lot more respect for the universalist who says that Jesus died for everybody and everybody's going to be in heaven. I have more respect for them. I think they're wrong. But I have more respect for them. At least they're consistent. They understand that if Jesus dies for somebody, then that person is going to be saved. Then for the Pelagian, for the semi-Pelagian, for the Armenian who says that Jesus died for everybody but there's going to be people in hell. That means that Jesus poured out His blood on somebody in vain. That means Jesus was not a Savior. He did not accomplish all that the Father sent Him to do whenever He said, I came to save my people from their sins. So brethren, we have a lot to rejoice for today. Not only that we are included in those people but that Christ in everything that He did on our behalf secured not only our legality before God, but our experiential uh, aspect, the, the experiential uh, salvation in this world so that we might know and that we might give glory to God for it. That we might not be disheartened. That we might not fall away. He's done everything. He's provided everything for us. That's a good shepherd, right? A good, that's a good Savior. That's a Savior. A Savior that doesn't fulfill all that is not a good Savior. It's another Jesus. Well, that's all the thoughts I have on 
all that. Y'all have any comments or any anything that you'd like to speak on or add to? Well, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, a couple of verses really confirm what you're saying. Uh, the 12th and after the 11th and 12th verses. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, not all. That's right. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion of the grave. He shall divide the spoil of the strong because he had poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. That actually came across my mind when I was talking about going a while ago and going another direction to get back to it. Isaiah 53 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Isaiah is one of my favorite books. It's the Romans of the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, but wonderful, wonderful. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. If there's any that Christ died for that is lost, he is not seeing the travail of his soul and being he's not being satisfied. I'm not talking about satisfaction as like whenever I eat a full meal and I sit down in my recliner and I'm like, oh, that's it, I can't eat no more. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking when we're talking about satisfaction here, that means that God not only is pleased with the outcome, but it means that everything that was required of God has been fulfilled, therefore everything's been satisfied. Okay? If you if you if you make if you take out a loan or something to a bank and you pay that loan back, whenever you make that last payment, you have now satisfied your debt. It no longer exists, right? You've satisfied everything that was required of you. You said that I would pay this much until this much is paid. I've done that. That debt is now satisfied. That's what we're talking about. That's how satisfaction we're talking about. God, we owed a debt because of our sin. And that debt has been satisfied. God had a righteousness and a justice that was looming. And because of sin, that sin was going to condemn us. But praise the Lord, we were elect in Christ Jesus. And before the foundation of the world, God set His affection and love upon us and that He put us in Christ Jesus Christ stood as our mediator. Therefore, before the foundation of the world, we were never appointed under wrath. Before the foundation of the world, God saw us justified. Why? Because of the work of Christ Jesus that would come on our behalf. He saw those things that were not as though they were. (laughs) We were before the foundation of the world. The Bible says, blessed Because the Lord imputed not sin unto us. He had not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Brethren, what a blessed thought that is, because we're truly sinners, right? We really sin. We have sin. But praise the Lord, because of the intercessor, because of the mediator, because of Christ Jesus, God was satisfied. He was satisfied before the cross, even. I know some people don't like that. They don't like that doctrine. They don't like that teaching. They think that it couldn't have happened before Christ died. Brethren, the Bible says that He stood as the Lamb slain. That means that God viewed His people as if Christ had already been slain. He doesn't need to wait for something in time to happen to be able to declare it to be so. He declared the end from the beginning, right? So the end is declared. He doesn't have to wait for the end to declare what it's going to be. He didn't have to declare might just whenever I believed. He declared that before the foundation of the world. He didn't have to wait till Jesus died on the cross to know that Jesus would be faithful to go die on the cross. He knew that would be that his son would be faithful. I got an email today from a fellow that used to be involved in the Roman Catholic Church, and he was going through some memos mementos in the past and he sent me a copy of this in a PDF form. He says, Larry, I can't believe I found this. And it was called the Sacrament of Confirmation of the Holy Spirit by the Father of the Catholic Church. And he said, can you believe that one time 
you know, 25 years ago, I had the Spirit confirmed on me, and I wasn't even a believer. You know, I didn't even, I hadn't even come to saving knowledge of Christ. And I just emailed him back, and I, it was Mike Orr, and I said, Mike, I said, no priest can confer the Holy Spirit on anybody. It's basically in the sacrament of confirmation and sealing the Holy Spirit. Well, in that fact, neither can a priest. A priest can't do it, but neither can a Baptist preacher. Neither can a Baptist church. You know, a lot of times people think just because we lay on hands, we're all of a sudden conferring the Holy Spirit on somebody. No, it's just a, it's just symbolic. It's like the Lord's Supper and baptism. It doesn't confer any grace. It doesn't. That's why we. That's why we don't want to call them sacraments. We don't call them sacraments. And uh, it's been unfortunate that there have been some Baptists down through the ages that have used that term, but it's because of their influence from the Protestant Reformation stuff. <coughs> that has been called sacraments. That comes straight out of Catholicism. A sacrament is a means of grace or is a conferring of grace. Baptism, laying on of hands, you know, any of that stuff doesn't confer grace. There's only one thing that can bring grace to you. <laughs> That's the work of Christ on your behalf and the the working of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And that doesn't come by outward things. But what do we do? Whenever we lay on hands of people, all that is is just a... Uh, it's just a symbolic thing that we're trusting in the Lord. Mm-hmm. What He has already confirmed. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't confirm anything. I can't confirm Dibby Squat. But, you know, uh, what, what are we doing? We're confirming what the Lord has already confirmed. Right? Good word. Anybody else? Brothers, you got anything you'd like to add or comment? You want to get up here and preach? Get up here and preach? <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for this time around your word and fellowship with us through the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can rely upon your word and that it is unchangeable. We're glad that you're immutable, unchangeable, and forever the same. And we're glad that you were slain from the foundation of the world and that you've chosen us and predestinated us into adoption. Pray that you would go with us this week and may your presence be felt in an experiential way in all of our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.